Roger here with some announcements before we get into this week's episode. Closure Sync is a new conference by the creator of Purely Functional Doc TV, Eric Normand. Set in New Orleans on February 15th and 16th of 2018, Closure Sync is all about the craft, business, and culture of closure. Go to ClosureSync.com, that's ClosureSync.com, to sign up. Lambda Days 2018 will be taking place February 22nd and 23rd in Krakow, Poland. The early bird tickets are sold out, but a new batch of tickets for the conference will start on November 1st. For more information and to register, visit www.lambdadays.org. Bob 2018 is in Berlin, Germany on February 23rd. Bob is a developer conference on what's best in software development. Naturally, it has a strong focus on functional programming. For more information and to register, visit bobconf.de. That's B-O-B-K-O-N-F dot D-E. And Bob is immediately followed by Closure D on February 24th, also in Berlin. More information on Closure D can be found at closured.de. That's closured.de. Cross-registration discounts for Bob and Closure D are also available. And if you know of any other conferences around functional programming, email contact at functionalgeekery.com, and I'll be happy to announce them. Also, some of you have mentioned that you would like to show support for Functional Geekery. In that vein, Functional Geekery now has a Patreon page. If that is how you would like to show your support, you can find out more at www.patreon.com slash fngeekery. And a giant virtual hug goes out to all those who are already supporting the podcast. Lastly, if you're enjoying Functional Geekery, please help spread the word. If you would leave your rating and or review on iTunes, or your favorite podcast directory, or even share your favorite episodes on social media, I need your help to spread the word about Functional Geekery. And if there are any guests or topics that you want to hear from or about, please reach out and email guest at functionalgeekery.com, and I'll put them on my notes for future episode ideas. Thank you for listening, and for all your support. Welcome to Functional Geekery. I'm your host, Proctor, and this week with us we have Fred Herbert. Fred. Would you mind telling everyone a little bit about yourself? So, if you've never heard of me before, I've written Learn You Some Erlang for Great Good, I've written Erlang in Anger, and I've recently put some stuff about property-based testing, so I do enjoy writing quite a whole lot, but otherwise, that's mostly what I am known for. You've also got a couple talks in the past that have been really good about thinking through these things, and it seems to be your Erlang experience of thinking through these weird problems and making things with usability. So if we don't get to those, I'll mention those offhand and include the things like the making Erlang approachable reference in the show notes. But when you get in and you've got this background and part of that was you were touting the approachability of Erlang. Your book was a big help for that on my case. But what put you into Erlang to begin with? Because at that time of the book, there weren't a lot of resources around. And how did you first get into Erlang? Right. So it's a bit accidental. And my entry into Erlang is similar to my entry to programming, which is I did not intend to do that at first. I got into programming. Initially, I went into multimedia technical program in a college to do website design. And I discovered it by accident and found that it could be quite a creative endeavor. And so I really liked it, started working at a job as a front-end integrator doing CSS and HTML and a bit of PHP and database wrangling for a dating site. And at that place, I really wanted to dig more and more into programming and got to play with Python, with C, with Scheme, tied a bit with the idea of functional programming languages. And eventually, they made a small research and development department at that place. Uh, that turned out to be three people. 
and one of them just asked me like the chat system we have is old and crappy and that was before even facebook had a chat system and they told me can you look at this erlang thingy it sounds like it would be good for a chat system and so i did and i to do that i think they lent me the old book from joe armstrong and others from 1996 which i actually stole from that job they also lent, I think, Programming Your Line by Joe Armstrong was coming out around that time, possibly. I'm not quite sure about the timelines anymore. But anyway, I just dived in and really the language just clicked with me in terms of the designing I would tend to do for a program would be bubbles and arrows and everything like that. I tried multiple times to get into the object-oriented design patterns and it just didn't really mesh with me. And the stuff in Erlang just instantly clicked and went there very well. And so I kind of just started going in there. And to force myself to learn about it better, that's how I just started taking notes of all the stuff I was seeing in the language. And eventually that turned into the idea for learning some Erlang. And so as I was writing the book, I was learning it at the same time. That's possibly what gives it really the kind of unique perspective it has in there in that it makes for a very, very easy approach because I did have the newcomer mind while writing it. It's one of the challenges. If you've been used to a piece of technology for 10 years, you kind of forget all the surprising things that you just assume are there anymore. And so I don't think I could be able to rewrite the same book today because I'm just in a different place. And you said you had some little bit of experience with functional programming on the radar. What were those other languages that you kind of were playing with, had experience with before you took the deep dive into Erlang to help understand where you were and maybe a little bit about what helped Erlang click specifically? Right. So the previous experience I had with functional languages was mostly due to me browsing online forums and then knowing that I mostly did PHP and JavaScript and that kind of stuff and seeing all the negative opinions about the language as bad as they are kind of forced me to go look into different stuff. And so I started playing with Python a bit. And Python had these lambdas thingies that you could use that were a single expression that let you do anonymous functions. And eventually there was this meme at the time about, have you read your SICP today? And so I just grabbed the structure and interpretation of computer programs book and went through it with the exercises, I think from the first three chapters. And then I skipped over the exercises for the last two ones. But that was really my dive into functional languages. I hadn't touched, I think, statically typed programming languages like Haskell or OCaml. At that point, I found about them a bit later, but mostly I read them and I don't write them a whole lot. So really, when it came to Erlang, it was not necessarily the functional aspect, although that was good. For me, what made it really made it click was, first of all, the pattern matching in there is a very kind of visual way to work through your code and see what it's doing. There's a texture to the code you write that makes it easy to scan and read for me. And I can no longer function very well without that. And the other aspect of it is just that idea of isolated processes running and communicating by messages. Uh, maps very well with the kind of bubbles and arrows I would draw when planning a program. And then I could just translate that directly into code. And that was a kind of revelation for me. In that structure that you're referencing, is that the Erlang programs where they all have the same kind of layout and template where some people talk about that just as boilerplate? 
Is that the structure that you see that helps you think about these programs or is that a different level of structure that you're doing? Because I know some people like that boilerplate because they like that structure. Is that the structure you're referring to or is there a different structure? So this is the uh, OTP framework. And now it's what I would refer to as very, very valuable because I dive into any program in any area of the industry. And you do get that same structure about how the code should be booted and everything. But back when I was learning Erlang, I think the community was at a different point in time. There were mostly only the official documentation about OTP, some very, very basic stuff in books for the few books that were around. And mostly if you went around on IRC asking, like, how do I get going with OTP? Most people just knew about maybe the gen server one, generic server implementation and interface that you could find on blog posts. But there was no great, I would say, community knowledge about how to use it. Mostly it was just basic airline that people tended to use a whole lot. And basic airline for me was entirely fine as a way to structure the programs and just work about it. Like this kind of idea that there is no main function, you can have a million of them if you want, was really nice to me. And that's possible because I came from a web front end where I didn't have a main loop. It was a server calling a CGI script and booting every request, and they could already happen concurrently. Just working with PHP or JavaScript gave you that kind of multiple runtime environments with multiple entry points that you have straight away. What they didn't really have at that point, and... Ajax was just coming around was a bit of the idea that they can communicate together. And so Erlang kind of gave me that idea that the timelines could be self-directed. You could start all these processes and everything. Like I had very little experience with the Linux trading model and whatever of that kind at that point. So for me, it was just that humongous amount of power that was done in a risk-free manner that I really, really liked in a way to structure a program. Now, OTP was not super big back then, but over the years, it kind of became really the basic thing that everyone told you that you really, really must know to get going. And then I think the books and literature and blog posts and community knowledge about it went up and became greater with time. And now, if you don't do OTP, you can't even publish libraries for the most part. People are not going to use them. When I started, people didn't even publish libraries. They would just download them and put them in make files and whatever directly. So the landscape really, really changed, but I think it changed for the better. There's a bit more structure. I do like the boilerplate because it just makes it easy to know where you are. You write the code maybe once and then you have to read it dozens of times. So I don't mind writing a bit slower to get a much easier time reading it. And then you mentioned you kind of thought in bubbles and arrows and that made the processes easier to pick up. And it sounds like the PHP, JavaScript, where anything can start happening just depends on which part of the entry point of the script you hit based off any given request or any given action trigger via JavaScript might happen. What was the extra process if OTP wasn't around in thinking in some of these disconnected processes and the resiliency aspect that Erlang touts between these processes versus just thinking in concurrent aspects? Because I know you've done a lot with helping push that embrace failure kind of stuff and trying to make that more accessible. What was that leap between just thinking concurrently and then thinking concurrently, but also being able to handle those failures that you tout with the Erlang runtime? It comes back to the primitives that you have in the language. And that's what frustrates me with a language like Go, for example, in that if you start a different process or Go routine or whatever you want to call it, 
what you can do in Erlang is really set, well, there's two constructs. One of them is a link. In the link, what it lets you do is tie two processes together so that if one dies, the other also dies. But you can also flag a process to be a kind of special one where instead of dying, it receives it as a message. And so you kind of get these asynchronous exceptions that you can handle only in a message at a time you want to handle them. And then that lets you construct your own processes that are kind of more resilient, that are able to deal with others around them failing. And that quickly gives you the kind of pattern and power that you need to get supervisors going. The other one that you have is the monitor. And the monitor is more of a creeper concept where you look for the failure of another process, but you don't necessarily want to die if it dies and it's only one-way communication channel. So these two constructs give place to some really, really cool ways to organize code where if there is a part of the coding that you do that might be risky or might take a long period of time, you just offshoot it to a different place. And if it doesn't answer in good time, you kill it. Or if it fails, then you can capture that whenever you want. So you kind of get the ability to remove that kind of try-catch embedding of the error path with the good happy path of your code. So if everything goes well, you do something. And if everything or something goes bad, you do something else. And that kind of path is interleaved one into another in most programming languages. So if you're working in Go again, you get to check the if error every single place you have. And the happy code path is, I find, confusing to read because you have to do all the error handling at the same time. If you're doing it in Erlang, you can just have that piece of code that's extremely straightforward, and then you can handle the errors in a different way, or if you are linked, it just kills you as well. So I found that way of working with it far, far simpler to understand in my case. And OTP more or less just takes these kinds of design patterns that you would have yourself and puts them in a safe, well-established context. The other thing that you have that's really critical is the nothing shared approach. And that's what lets you really kill any process whatsoever, restart them in whatever way you want, because you know that the local state you have is safe to destroy, is safe to corrupt, is safe to roll back. If you are using any kind of language, and once again, I'm going to use Go as the other example there, where you have the ability to mutate memory or just share them across various actors, the risk you have there is that any library that you have not audited 100% can be mutating memory just in a way that killing the process and bringing it back up is not a safe operation to do. There is no guarantee if you do that, that the transient state or the possible error that caused the failure in the first place is going to be gone. It might just be stuck in your system now. And so that immutability is really a big, big key of making all of the thing work together. And then we really get into the more functional aspects of things. And do you remember... Were there any experiences that kind of helped this click for you? Because I'm thinking when I first got into Erlang and picked up your book, I picked up your book and Erlang and OTP in action at the same time and kind of read them back and forth together because I was reading yours online for a little bit before I was able to get the the hard print version. But as you were going back and forth, do you remember what kind of like made that click? Were there any previous scars or problems that you said this made this hair handling tricky, but when I saw that way that Erlang handles with links and monitors, it seems really clear that you got it based off the yeah. reading. Was that, what was that mindset shift and how did that come about? 
I think I pretty much got it instantly. For me, it just felt, you know, it's a difference between trying to prevent the errors compared to trying to deal with them. And so this kind of idea that people make mistakes all the time, there's going to be bugs in production, there's going to be issues and errors. What if you coped with that? The fact that they are going to happen rather than trying to prevent them forever. Everyone, I think, at some point is aware of the fact that there are diminishing returns and trying to eliminate all bugs, where you know there's going to be a baseline of them. You can try to eliminate as many as you can, but there's always going to be a few that hide in there unless you take an enormous amount of time and budget to be able to weed all of the imperfections out of the system. And so Erlang kind of gave that promise of, you know what, it's fine if you ship imperfect programs. We're going to find ways to work around that. And that approach for me was just an instant sell, and I, I just embraced it. I don't think there was any big shift required for me at that point. And that's possibly due to the kind of inexperience I had back then. I had very little to unlearn in comparison to what I could just get to be comfortable with in Erlang. And as you push down this route, you start doing more, you start building this up, you start getting involved in some of these projects like rebar and start helping push the community forward in various ways and making things learnable. When you said you start from the old Joe Armstrong book from 96, and as you start seeing this steam gather, what have you seen evolve about the Erlang community and its reception to getting these ideas documented, getting these things shared? Because if you're going from there's one book, it's the Joe Armstrong book, too. Now we're getting a lot more, and we've even got more languages propagating. At a high level, what are some of these things that we should think about with these languages, whether it's Erlang or any other language, about what makes it useful and what makes it be able to be picked up aside from the fact that it's just useful? There's the basic tooling, and here my involvement in Rebar 3 is a thing there. But I think that if we want to have a long term view, It's all about the health of the community and the experience of newcomers coming in. And I gave a keynote at last year's airline user conference about that, which is a problem that the airline community had for a good while, is that it's an old community from before the tooling was as fancy as it is today for plenty of languages. And it's also a bunch of server-side people, myself included, who are fine dealing with the common line and just the utilities that are there. And if you enter the Erlang space, you're used to not having, well, at least back then, you were used to not having a whole lot of support and tooling. And so you had a bunch of people who were very interested and self-motivated and good self-learners to get in there. And you also had to have the free time to do the investment of learning about all the little idiosyncrasies of, well, yeah, you have to use this old build making system. There's about three of them. Here's how you plug them together, and then you get your system going. And what happens when you do that to an entire community is that you have that group effect where you basically have a community of people who self-selected as people who were fine dealing with garbage tooling. And that's a bit of a problem because there's far fewer of these people than there are people who just want to solve their problem and get moving. And so That's a bit of the long-term vision I think is critical here, is making sure that the newcomer experience is good enough that they can get in there, encrust themselves, 
get part of the community and then bring these new, fresher viewpoints than the ones that the old guard has, including myself for a good part of it. I'm not that old, but I'm still part, of, I think, of some second wave Erlangers. I'm not one of the, the, the first people who did it in telcos, but I'm not one of the newer people doing it as well. But yeah, I think in short, it's about that. If you have only a very difficult way to get in, you're only going to get people inside who are fine with difficult ways to work. So you have to make a conscious effort to make better training wheels an easier on-ramp experience so that people with far less tolerance for all this garbage of bad tooling and bad experiences are now in there and able to lend hands with it. Because that's the other thing. If you have a very tiny community, then you have far fewer people able to do on and off contributions to improve things. So you you rely on a few heavy hitters who are going to spend a lot of time. And hopefully once you do that, you get a lot more people able to do smaller contributions. But over time, that has a much, much greater impact than just a few heavy hitters forever. And this old guard, when they self-select in, because I've heard this with other languages as well. But Erlang seems to be one of those prime examples that I've heard of. Is part of that self-selection and part of the old guard mindset, and I'm asking this because people need to be cautious in Erlang or whatever other language is, is that because they find that with Erlang or the like, they can be so much more efficient that they can afford to waste the time on the tooling as opposed to some of these other things, potentially? No, no, I think it's probably a question of, I'd say, experience is possibly part of it. And the other one is just like tenacity that you have in terms of, it's just a tolerance. You build a tolerance to these kind of things. If you're a graybeard Unix wizard who knows all the kinds of toolings and the ins and outs of a lot of stuff, then if your language's tooling is letting you down, it's far easier to get into your knapsack of experience and grab other tools that can fix that for you and then find a workaround. Or you have an idea about how things are implemented and how they work underneath. And so the kind of very scary interface with a million buttons makes sense to you. So I think that's probably the biggest part of it. It's not, it's not something conscious. It's not that people are making really an effort into... Working that way, it's not a question of time. I think it's just a question of tolerance to it and habit and things like that. Yeah. If you're the kind of person who thinks that spending their Saturday night remaging a computer to get a better OS to do your development is fun, then you're not necessarily going to have a lot of problems getting into a community with a programming language where the tool chain is kind of arcane. And if there's an error, you don't know what it means. You're going to be fine just digging around to figure it out. If you're someone who doesn't have that experience or doesn't have the temperament, it's not that you're going to quit computers, it's that you're going to pick a different language with a better learning curve and a better experience in the first place. So I think a lot of programming people started in the 80s when their families got a computer and then you had nothing to do but learn by yourself and there was no way around it. But the landscape has changed and there's a um, hundred interesting programming languages with all decent environments. And if you're one of them with a crappy one, then you're just not going to be competitive on the kind of open market of programming languages. You'll be in a better place if you have a language that gives you trouble six months in once you're in production than if you're a programming language that gives you trouble installing the runtime environment. Just because once you've invested six months 
and you have trouble, then there's an incentive to at least fix that because you already invested that much time. And that makes sense. And I just want to make sure, based off your observations of what you've seen, that we get any of those tricks. So if we find we're in one of those camps that don't mind digging around, if that's our personality as a developer, that we can make sure we catch ourselves and say, oh, yeah, I'm digging around. Not everybody appreciates that. That's more my quirk of a personality. So let's think about the fact that I shouldn't have to do this. Even if I do enjoy doing this, I shouldn't have to. Right, right. I mean, there's one interesting thing to do is just get a new person. If you're doing it at a company and you have a junior employee coming in and learning the language, that's the easiest way to go about it. You just ask them, like, take notes of everything you find frustrating or anything that goes bad. If they ask you a question, you take a note of that. And how could you make that experience easier? It's really, really hard to find your own blind spots. It's a lot easier once you have someone to tell you about them. And so the kind of interesting question to ask is, there is a lot of learning someone can do when they're getting a new language with sparse tooling. They can get to learn about all the little other avenues that you have in Unix or BSD to do your things. Like There's a lot of things you can learn that are going to be extremely valuable. The question is, is it valuable right now to learn it as opposed to get going fast in your language and getting the benefits of the tooling you have? I mean, if you have Erlang, it's going to be about some kinds of fault tolerance. If you're doing Haskell, it's going to be like, what you want to do is get that person to experience what it is to get the type checker to save as fast as possible. What you have to do is really spend... I don't know, you get told to use NixOS and then you have to change your editor and then learn a new one at the same time. Those are valuable skills, but they're not valuable to the experience of learning the language. And so it shouldn't be the responsibility of the person learning the language to have to learn an entirely new development chain at the same time. Or if they have to do it, it should take five or ten minutes. And if you can't do that, you're putting them in a tough place. So you can ask the question for yourself, but the easiest way is really to get into the places where the newcomers are starting to learn the language and get, I would say, narrower interaction with them and ask them questions, ask them for feedback and figure out if there's any way you can fix that for them. The first easy way to fix it is just to tell them what to do to go past the hurdle they have right now. And the long-term solution is to remove the hurdle altogether. And that's the hardest part. That one requires time. That's where time is well invested. It's not in learning all the crappy stuff and workarounds. It's in fixing them. And that's good reinforcement for thinking about these things as we go forward and we're trying to figure out how whatever language we want or tooling we want to help get that adopted either in the larger community or in a smaller workplace environment if we're trying to make some of these sales because this language, this feature has these benefits. Yeah. And... Then moving on, you mentioned the you get the on-ramp. People are more invested if they've got it in production six months later and it's been running in production for six months or a year. You've also talked a lot about that and thinking about production issues and failures. And you've got your Erlang and Anger little book. You've got some other talks around some of these things about breakages and how things can go wrong. Where do you find some of these ideas coming through on that side that says, do you put it out? Do you understand these things? Or what's the understanding for, I guess, a production lifecycle? And where does that fall into the on-ramp and understanding of your tooling? That's a tough one. I mean, I get most of mine from having been on call for a few of the services I put in production. 
And that's just where you really, really see that a lot of the work you do is not in writing it the first time. It's really in keeping the thing going forever after that. My first job, again, was on a dating site. The dating site was about 10 years old. None of the first or initial developers were there anymore, I think. And so you're just stuck with an entire code base that nobody really knows how it works entirely, and you have to deal with it. The jobs I had after that were somewhat in that situation where at least you had a very large code base or significant code base with zero tests, even if people knew how it worked. And you get that same kind of problems there. And so the kind of idea is that the kind of jobs I got are those that put me in a situation where the system was already live. And the programming language is kind of fine, but the major part of my work is just reading, understanding, and doing small modifications with possibly heavy repercussions in production. And so that just brings you really quickly to have that kind of system thinking about it, where the decision you make today is a decision that may have to change in five years' time when you're no longer there, and how are the people going to deal with that if there is absolutely no way to understand what the code is doing or what happens there. And so that's one part of it is that kind of long-term vision about what is stability, what is code that is easy to delete rather than code that is easy to to reuse or modify. So stateless code that has fewer ties to global environments is super easy to delete compared to very complex interleaving of stateful data that is just floating around. So that's one big part of it. The other one is just that specifically at Heroku, there were clusters of 70, 100, 150 servers that we had to debug live from user reports for backend applications that we do not control. So you have that kind of middleware component that we manage that is absolutely critical to customer applications, but you might have very limited customer cooperation and figuring out the issues. So it's all about being able from your own means and only what you have on your own machine to figure out what's happening in the environment around it. And right now, a lot of ops people are mentioning the big divide between observability and monitoring. And the airline VM turns out to have had these requirements a long, long time ago in telco systems, where if you have 15 seconds of downtimes, you might have a $5 million fine for your downtime. So you have to be able to look at the system while it's running and do all these kinds of operations. And to me, that was a very, very interesting one, mostly because Erlang assumes that productionization is a phase of your software development that you have to consider. The runtime takes care of that, possibly to a lesser extent, I guess, than I would think something like Smalltalk would do, where Smalltalk, the virtual machine, is the programming language, and like there is really the big tie in there. Erlang, by comparison, has a very distinct runtime in programming language and implementation. But the runtime is fully instrumented to let you do almost anything you would need to do in production with it. So that kind of capability is entirely missing for the vast majority of programming languages out there. Not all of them, but for many of them, you don't have that kind of ease to work through and dig through everything that's happening. And so stuff like Dtrace or Perf can be used to get some visibility but it's not the same thing as opening up the terminal and from day one, you're able to trace any function in Erlang for whatever and just keep those with a given argument bigger than some given value and then you get the output right there. So that kind of stuff is, I don't know, it's kind of uh, getting a new 
If you get a sixth sense at some point, it's hard to describe to other people. So if you've never had to debug a production system and then been able to do it, it's hard to imagine getting the need. It's a kind of deal where once you try it, then it's hard to give it up. The joys of being on call as someone who's developing the software. Yeah. And you mentioned removing as much of the global state as possible. You mentioned early on expecting that failures happen, not trying to prevent everything, but knowing things will go on. You mentioned the observability and monitoring and just the complexity and knowing what's going on with your system. Do you have any highlight bullet points that you would add to that for people to think about going forward with the systems thinking? Are there any things that people don't necessarily think about that they should at least start to understand a little bit more, regardless of Erlang or any other language, as they start to think about the complex beast that is productionizing a system and knowing that if you've done your job well, this thing might live for 50 years, like we've seen with some of these Fortran and COBOL systems that are still running infrastructure? Yeah, definitely. Especially for our functional slant on the podcast, I think, and what I would like to see more focus on is on human beings and operators and the structure of a team. Things like Conway's Law have been pretty obvious for people for a long period of time. Just the idea that it's much harder to scale up a team than it is to scale up uh, a code base. And that any decisions that are made with the fancy tooling that you might or might not want to have and the ability of the programming language and the clever solutions and everything, the responsibility to running that in the end always comes down to a human being, possibly a junior employee that doesn't really know what's going on. And part of responsible, I think, system design is figuring out the right amount of cleverness to put in a solution and in the procedures that surround it so that almost anybody could be able to operate it. And that's a really, really tough problem. I frankly don't have a good solution for it. That's what I'm kind of trying to think about as much as possible these days. I now have a job that is closer to being a systems architect. And so I'm a bit further removed from code, but that's what's keeping me interested right now. It's really the human aspect of things. How do you build a system such that operators who are tired, maybe at three in the morning, don't have to spend six hours babysitting it to health? What can be automated in there? What could be done by someone with very little expertise? Once you have a bug that is the entirely unexpected stuff, how do you go in there and dig for it and it doesn't take you three months? Because I've definitely had bug hunts that last for three months and it's not a great experience. And yeah, it's the importance, I think, of shifting the focus away from the tech and into the people using it. It sounds like an easy way out as a question, but I think the functional communities all around have that problem. Erlang has it, Haskell has it. Maybe Racket doesn't really have it as much, but there's a thing I, I like to call being, I don't know if you've seen the show HouseMD, where you have this doctor who is absolutely terrible as a human being, but is so brilliant that you can never fire that guy. Familiar with him? I am. I've seen this show. Yeah, right, right. So I think a lot of functional communities attract the kind of people who want to prove themselves and to other around how clever they are and how smart they are and how much they know. And these kinds of people are absolutely toxic to a team working well. That's how you get that kind of mysterious module or class or code base that nobody understands except this one dude. And what inevitably happens with that code base is that nobody touches it for a decade after they're gone or they just throw it out away and rewrite it entirely. 
And yeah, that kind of attitude is one I had myself, I think, when I was younger and starting in there. But it's really, really interesting that if you see your code as a piece of writing or uh, uh, yeah, as a piece of writing, the audience of that piece of writing cannot just be people who feel super smart all the time. It has to be friendly to newcomers as well. It has to be readable for people who don't even know the language that much and have just read it a few times before. And if you're able to get to that point of readability, even if it's a bit longer, then you can be in a very, very good place. Now, of course, if you have a team of super senior people who know stuff in and out, you're able to push things a bit further, but people forget and make mistakes. So usually trying to have a very understandable piece of code is worth a lot. And related to that is the kind of tendency of people to micro-optimize everything to get the fastest piece of code possible. When it comes to operators, it's much, much simpler, I think, to just have a piece of code or a system that you have rated for a given number of performance. This box right here on that kind of hardware is able to do 5,000 requests a second. I don't care if it can do 10 or 15,000, as long as there's a number on it that tells me 5,000 and you guarantee me that it's always going to work fine at 5,000. I no longer need super qualified people to operate it. They just have to match the number of requests that they have to the number of boxes that they have, and then the experience is going to go well. And that kind of thing requires predictability and good understanding of the engineering principles that go under building your product. But I think that's a good example of what I mean when you should focus on the people there. You want to make their decision-making process simpler. And you do that by giving them very predictable pieces of code, no matter how fast or slow they are, that as long as it's reliably hitting the point you told them it would hit, then they can reason about the system at a higher level than they would otherwise. And I know as a lot of functional programmers that we are, we talk about the reasoning and predictability of pure functions and the like. Is there any things that you would say that you found in your experience that are those things that give reasonability and predictability in general that we should just probably focus on first? I think there was a text by Peter Van Roy at some point that mentioned programming in the small and programming in the large, and that good programming languages support programming in the small and in the large. And programming in the small, I think, is done very easily through functional programming in that, yeah, you have pure functions, you have usually very decent type checkers, you have very interesting tooling to ensure that what happens is all fine. But the responsibility about that, I think, is much harder when we think of programming in the large. And that's where people work around issues with microservices, for example, or just service-oriented architecture. That kind of programming in the large concept is very lacking in a lot of areas. And so we work around it through architecture rather than working around it through language constructs or practices. And there's a few interesting attempts right now. I think LASP was one of them which is uh, CRDTs, conflict-free data structures in a distributed programming environment where once you have that, technically you could transparently scale up to thousands of nodes or systems without much of a problem. I think those are interesting looks to have in making difference between programming in the small and programming in the large. And right now, a lot of the functional stuff, I think, focuses a lot on programming in the small because, I don't know, it's paper-oriented or... It's still in the area where a lot of it is based on education, and education can hardly afford to have complex use cases that take months to understand. It has to be self-contained and easy to demonstrate, 
And that intimately kind of limits you to programming in the small, which is super important. Like it's hard to make something reliable if the core components are not. But I think a more general and global vision is lacking at that point. I think functional programming as it is today is really, really going to be great for a lot of these narrowly scoped problems. And then it gets super complex when you just start thinking about how do I deploy the configuration changes to a functional language that's immutable. That's one of the most basic concerns of someone deploying an application. And something that's pure and immutable is going to have a very, very hard time doing that very basic thing. Like, how do you get going for that? Erlang has some solutions. Elixir might have different ones. Some languages might let you just read environment variables from the terminal and everything like that. But how come there is no good set solution in most pure functional languages? It's because they're not necessarily focused on programming in the large as much as they should, I think. And possibly they are, and I just don't know about it because I'm not that knowledgeable about things anyway. And those are some good points to think about going forward and trying to figure out how these large systems operate and thinking about it as a larger right. program. Right. Large system operates in more than code. A large system operates along with its environment. It impacts it and receives feedback from it, and the people operating it are as part of the system as the system itself. When a plane crashes or there's been a problem there and there was a technical issue, they say it was uh, usually it's related to a human error and the pilot made some mistakes. But the thing the airline companies don't do is just tell people to get better pilots. They review and revise and change the designs and procedures so that these errors don't happen anymore. And I think programming communities, especially those centered about, around the language, rather than the operations that go around them, will tend to give you a programming solution to a human problem in there. And that's always super hard to get going well, or just blame the user for having done the wrong thing. So yeah, that's an interesting thing to dig into. Yeah, that'll be some good food for thought. We're getting close to our time, but I still got a little bit of topics. You're involved with property testing and you've got some talks coming up, so we'll cover those. But Based off what we've covered so far, is there anything we should expound on or any other topics that you want to bring up outside of a high-level overview of some property testing stuff that you got coming up and upcoming talks? Outside of that, I don't think so. I think that that should cover most of it, especially if we're getting a bit short on time. Well, I do want to cover a little bit about property testing. You've got a site talking about property testing. You mentioned you've got a upcoming book. So do you want to give a... We've had some people talk about property testing at a high level and what it is, but do you want to give a pitch on your view of property testing and where that fits in and your view of using that as a tool, whether it's programming in the small or even maybe applying property testing to programming in the large? So property-based testing is super interesting to me because the traditional or usual standard tests that I would write are those that validate my expectations about a program. And the thing that always happens with these tests and with any other kind of error and any kind of logging that you have in production is that things break in ways you didn't expect them to break. Because if you expected them to break in that manner, you would have covered it already. So uh, I kind of go from the assumption that all the, or not all, but most of the errors in a system are mistakes that I didn't see coming. And so what I'm interested in finding is tools or practices that 
help me figure these things out even if I don't have all the expertise required. And so Erlang ties into that and in that the unforeseen errors are handled. Property-based testing gets to be super interesting at that point because it tests or lets me write tests that explore the program in a way that I wouldn't have thought of doing it by myself. And so it gives me insights or foresights that I wouldn't have otherwise. So that's what is super interesting for that from my point of view. It lets you, you know, in test-driven development, you write the tests as you go in the code so that you get a better position as the user of the code and how it's going to be running and you write from your expectations first. Doing something close to test-driven development with property-based testing is far interesting because it gives you that kind of approach where you are not only testing your program, you are testing and reasoning about your understanding of the problem space at the same time. And so if I'm writing just a function that returns change as a cash register, the kind of inputs it's going to generate and as I design the program and the tests going hand in hand is going to have me question assumptions I made that I didn't realize were even assumptions. So for me, that's where it's super, super interesting at a very high level. In terms of a lower level, I think there's multiple families of property-based testing. There's the uh, quick check stuff that you see in Haskell, where it's really type-based information that is getting shoved into your program and figuring out if there are inputs that make it work or not. That's very close to fuzzing. You have the Erlang variants of quick check that have been developed by the same people. And those use a combinator-based approach instead where you have to mix together generators that are functions, returning functions, returning data types to guide the framework into exploring your code. And then you've got something like Hypothesis in Python, which is super interesting because it uses something closer to fuzzer logic at the bottom of it and is really having a great focus in user experience from that point of view. But I think those that are the most interesting are the Erlang ones and the hypothesis from the point of view that they're not, not just using type-based information. You have to write or at least focus that you have the control of the generators in a way that is not tied to the types. And so it's a tool that is more about exploring rather than automatically generating test code for you. So that's the appeal for it. There's also a, a lot of power in these kinds of tests. Like if you do unit tests for them, you get a lot of coverage. But the quick check and derivatives of it in Erlang like proper, which is the one I'm using in proper testing website slash book, has support for stateful testing, where instead of just considering your program to be this function with an input and an output, it sees your programs as that model, stateful model of a sequence of operations. And instead of generating inputs, the inputs it generates is a sequence of commands and operations. And so what you end up doing is being able to test a system in the large by taking a bunch of operations and running them one after the other. So if I'm writing an ATM, what I can have is an operation that tells you, you insert a card, you remove a card, you insert a card, you deposit a given amount of money, you remove a given amount of money, you deposit 15 times, you remove the card, you put the card back and do all these operations for you, which is extremely powerful over an API. And the more complex the implementation of your system is, the more coverage you get of simple understanding of how it should work. So the ATM might be communicating with multiple branches of the bank in the back end, has to care for all the kinds of hardware controllers that distribute the money and all that kind of stuff. But to the person using it, it's extremely simple as an API or as an interface. 
And then you're able to get surprisingly large coverage of that with very little effort through these kinds of toolings. So that's super powerful. And I haven't seen a lot of stuff that gives you the same kind of control and ability to really explore your system to find the failure modes that you didn't know it had in the first place. And so that's covered by both QuickCheck Interlang and the proper testing tool is all that concurrency message passing testing? So the QuickCheck tool in Erlang has far better support than the open variants have for it. The company called Cubic basically gives full support to that one. It's a commercial product. It's not the cheapest one, but it has stuff like alternative schedulers for the virtual machines to find interleavings that cause bugs. It has test harnesses so you can test your C code with the Erlang QuickCheck stuff. The open source variants proper in this case has a lot less support for these fancy features, a bit of a different API, but for the core stuff, you still get a really good tool out of it, especially since you tend to pay nothing for it. And then in the Erlang world, is this one of those things that there's the gen state or the gen FSM? Is this one of those things that you're thinking of all these messages in a gen FSM world, or is this just more applicable when you're thinking of these properties across i think it's more applicable across even across different languages like if i were to switch to whatever language you have in mind i would be super glad to see that a powerful framework like that exists it's really more about how you think about your code it doesn't really have to do with the erlang model it has to do about it for some of the concurrency stuff but that's not really the core of it. it's really about program exploration i think and problem space exploration and i wasn't sure with the message passing stuff, if that kind of pushed you ever so gently into thinking about it as more of these interactions via state machine behavior kind of thing that says, well, if I'm going to insert a card and try and withdraw, I haven't hit the state where I've authenticated by entering my pin yet. So maybe I need a state machine there that says these things are valid or not. So I didn't know if some of that stuff helped that thinking in the large and that systems thinking about what states are applicable translations at a high level. I think that's definitely applicable, but there are interesting cases where what the user perceives to be a state machine is not necessarily a state machine underneath. And the opposite is also true, where the implementation you have is a state machine, but what the user perceives has nothing to do with it. If I'm testing just a REST interface, for example, where I can put create, read, update, delete values, and then do cache invalidations and that kind of stuff, that can be represented as a state machine very easily on the back end in terms of the state of the thing, is it possible to do this kind of operation in a given state? But as a user, I don't really care about the implementation. So it really depends if you want to take a white box or a black box approach. If you take a white box approach, then sure you care. If you take a black box approach, you want to have a model that represents the most what the user would perceive, for example. So there can be a connection, but I don't think it's mandatory at that point. And that makes sense. And that's what I was wondering was, Just if it was the thinking as the person designing the systems and doing the systems thinking, if I started to force myself into thinking about these as a state machine or not, whether the user does, knowing how my software is built. Yeah, that's definitely a tricky one. I don't think there's one answer for all the possible cases. I'd say that sometimes yes, sometimes no, but it's really going to be case by case on that one. As boring as an answer as it is. (laughs) Yeah, and it was one of those things as you started talking about that systems thinking and the operations of stuff. If that 
helped put some of those thinkings on that radar. And it sounds like it might be just pure, these are things we never accounted for. Yeah, I think it might, but most people probably just won't take the time to do it. Like, it's hard to have a testing environment or one on your local machine that has the scope and breadth of a production system. I think we're going to see for a lot of time still just people who deploy by using canary nodes. You deploy on one node in production, you see if it looks right, and then you slowly make it bigger and bigger until it goes. And sometimes you're going to see a failure that takes a week to happen, and so the entire thing is going to go down or hiccup or have trouble. But in terms of just budget and complexity, I think that's still simpler than most of the solutions that people have when they try to do very, very fancy development environment that try to replicate production. It's just going to be hard. Some problems happen once you have 100 servers or over. You're not going to see them if you test with 10 or with 2. And it sounds like this property testing, the Quivic stuff, Cuvic stuff, not sure how you pronounce it, or the proper baseline with Erlang sounds like it's one of those toolings that would hopefully be coming for anything regardless of what it is. If you can just do a HTTP message or message queue or something else that says, as you said, if you have REST endpoints, could we just hook up all these microservices and figure out how we could have some sort of property testing that's almost language agnostic as long as it uses this kind of API? Right. You can get more certainty into the other components, but there's a level where it's large enough that even these testing tools are hard. I've seen interesting work done into trying to do kind of theorem-proof configurations that if you have a service, say Kafka, that requires a quorum to run, you cannot have an even number of instances on it, for example. But frankly, I think at that point, it's so large and so big. And I mean, not everyone is going to have a stack with 100 servers to run. That's going to be hard. So the best you can do is probably... Make sure that, yeah, you have predictable components that are easy to take online or offline or just easy way to kick the box to make it go again. And if you have that, you're just in a better situation. But frankly, I don't think property-based testing is going to be so magical a tool that it applies from everything from the smallest bit of code you have to the largest one with the production deployment. That would be, I think, a bit too preachy. It's going to be great for small functions, for stateful stuff, for some larger programs. What you're going to need to do, if, if you're testing something at the scale of data centers and whatnot, you're going to need so much of an investment in time and complexity that I don't think the framework is going to make that much of an impact at that point. Like most of the work is really going to be about being able to replicate environments on demand. That's where all the work is going to go. And that's more good things to think about and take in as for me and potentially others as we go forward thinking about how to start doing some of these system thinking and designing in the large. Yeah. I mean, the other approach is, again, you embrace the fact that you're going to use a canary deploy on one small node, and you just make sure that your system is as observable and possible to introspect as possible so that you can actually do something very useful with that approach. How can you safely deploy things in production to test them with as minimal of an impact as possible? That's possibly a, a thing to invest or spend time into that would be extremely interesting to do. If it's that costly to replicate production environments, maybe there's a better way to make experimentation in production simpler. That's not going to work super well if what you're doing is IoT devices that get deployed at the edge at customer sites. That would also be quite creepy if you were able to, I don't know, get to hijack someone's smart TV to see how it goes. 
but from the server-side environment, I mostly grew in as a professional developer. It's an interesting approach. Yeah, it was that little bit of balance of property testing meets Netflix's Simeon Army, where you've got some stuff that you're running in production and breaking in a safe way. Yeah, the true core of that is how much do you understand what is going on in your system? All of the bugs that are unknowns that surprise you are either emergent properties or things that you could not figure out. So anything that helps you understand that under limited budget is good. You could do total proof of all your systems, and I'm pretty sure they would be rock solid, but the time investment would be much larger than partial knowledge and partial demonstration of fitness. Lots of stuff to think about and chew over as I listen to this episode and go back and edit. I'm sure I'll be pulling stuff out going forward for a while. So we're wrapping up. You've got a talk at CodeMesh. Do you want to tease that at a high level? And then are there any other talks that you've got coming up? Right. So the talk at CodeMesh is the only one I have lined up for a decent period of time. And it's a presentation I've called Everything is Terrible. And it kind of ties in with all of that stuff I've just discussed, which is these unknown problems that pop out of nowhere and just ruin your life for a brief period of time. And so the talk in a nutshell is you're going to take a very simple application, where whether it's just like a small ordering system with two or three machines, and you're going to tie them together with very well-known abstractions, whether it be integers and TCP as a protocol or HTTPS or TLS to be more accurate. And you're going to use a database and you're going to use logs with timestamps in them or whatever. And in a system that is extremely small, that seems to have only three or four instances and a very limited scope, how surprisingly large number of bugs can be hiding and creeping under there. Just because our understanding of these abstractions were not as perfect as we thought they were. And so the entire talk is going through, I don't know, 40 minutes, one hour of Subtle bugs related to all kinds of things where very minor misunderstanding causes very large production issues. And most of them have been either directly things that I've encountered in productions or experience that I've drawn from the failures and issues of others. So I've had this talk done in French in a different conference earlier this year with new developers who had been in the industry less than two years and they were very afraid of going back to work, which I think was the intent of the talk. It's a, it's a good, scary story. Yeah, knowing how software is made sometimes makes me not want to use software at all and see things get more automated. So it's that weird balance there, knowing just yeah. peripherally like, how bad things can be. Right. And so I've been doing it for close to 10 years. And for close to 10 years, I've kept being surprised by nasty bugs I couldn't have seen coming. And it doesn't appear to be slowing down. So what's going to happen with, I don't know, whatever fancy device someone programs that has less experience than I do, more experience than I do, or just different experience than I do? It's an interesting one, even if you look at self-driving cars, which are great in great weather. But I'm living in northern Quebec. And so if there is a snowstorm, how does that stuff react? is always interesting because that cultural viewpoint or environmental viewpoint is not necessarily one that is given to the developers in a different context. And so anyone who gets to be, I guess, in a kind of minority view probably already has these concerns about multiple pieces of technology that they have. But I mean, they are at every level, whether it's just purely technical or it's at the social level of how these corporations release these products. So yeah, everything is terrible is the name of the talk. And that's all my cynicism 
put into 40, 45 minutes. I will definitely be looking forward to that talk. Sounds fascinating and scary and something that might reinforce some of my paranoia as well. So I don't know if that's good or bad. It's probably good at a personal level. And then when you start talking to other people, then you look like someone wearing a tinfoil hat and then it's worse than nothing. (laughs) There's no way to win them all. Do you have any other upcoming conferences appearances that you know about or planning on, even if you're not presenting at that point? No, not yet. I think I've just, well, there's going to be this Poundfest programming competition or hackathon that's going to come up in December. I'm going to send you the link for that one, which is basically it's a programming competition or yeah, it's a hackathon that takes place distributed over the internet. I used to be part of the team running it, I think five or six years ago or both. And a new group of people has taken it over, which is a good thing. And I'm going to be a judge in that competition. So that one should be fun. It's 9 and 10 of December. Yeah, I've just seen that come across the radar. And it definitely looks interesting and looks like it should be enjoyable to watch if I can't figure out something to enter in at least. Yeah. So we've mentioned a bunch of stuff. Is there anything else that you want to make mention to? We've mentioned Erlang and Anger. We've mentioned learning some Erlang. You've got your proper testing and the site and the book coming up. Is there anything else that we need to make mention to plug before? It's not for me. It's uh, that Medium blog post. If you look at this week in Erlang on Google, you're going to find it straight away. It's, I think, one of the things I, I had been waiting for a long time to come out of the Erlang community. I think the Erlang community had multiple RSS feed aggregators in the past or websites that tried to aggregate these kinds of what is going on in the community. And someone has finally made the effort of doing all of it by hand. And so you get a bit of well-groomed content about all the new stuff that's happening every week in the airline community. And that one I found to be super interesting. So I want that one to be very, very successful. So I'm plugging it. That's my link for the week. And I'll get that included in the show notes as well. All right. So where can people find you online, follow along with what's going on, keep updated as you start to put out more content? I have a blog that I haven't updated in a long period of time because I'm writing other stuff in a blog with the book. That's at ferd.ca, F-E-R-D.ca. There's my Twitter account where you can probably see me post about cynical stuff in programming and also fancy bags of chips. Yeah, that's actually a thing I do. I'm not going to pronounce my username because it's hard to pronounce. I'm just going to paste it and I assume that people will be able to go read a link. But that's really the two places I'm most active. I'm still hanging around in a few communities in Slack or IRC. But really, Twitter is going to be the most direct way to get a hand on me that I'm not going to postpone for five months. Like I used to receive a bunch of emails for the books and everything, and I just fall back on it and get very, very late. Sometimes just people asking for homework questions. And so, yeah, Twitter is the best way. Sounds good. And I'll get the links in the show notes. and. People can watch for the occasional blog post that comes up from you because I always appreciate those whenever those pop up. There's always some insight in there that I enjoy when I find those come through. All right. That's good to hear. I'd like to give a giant thank you to David Belcher for the logo. And once again, thank you, Fred, for taking your time to join me today. It was a pleasure talking with you. And I've been following you for probably five years or so now. And it's been interesting to follow along and talk with you and get some more details about how you think about these things and the way we think about software and 
some of that things for making it approachable for new developers and more approachable, I guess, for the end users that we may not think about even and how we can start to build more resilient systems. So thanks for taking the time to join me today. It's a pleasure talking with you. Thank you. Have a good day. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.